0: Welcome to the MVP podcast. I'm your host today, Jez Marsh, and today I have two guests. I'll let them introduce themselves. Number one. Uh,
1: Hello, I'm uh, Mark Roberts.
2: And I'm Holger Mundt.
0: Excellent. So we've got a couple of topics today to talk about. Um, The first one, considering it's rather topical, especially for us, because we're all Europeans, well, currently, anyway is brexit not necessarily a, a, yes not necessarily an mvp uh or monitoring centric one but it does impact us in all in different ways for example if you've got a customer that has the a uh a polling engine in the uk and one in the uh emea where does the database live after brexit yeah what do you think mark well there's a
1: whole series of issues around this and there's still an awful lot of things up in the air nothing real Uh, in terms of guidance, because this kind of fits in with that whole uh, issue we had last year with GDPR, um, where is the sovereignty of the data going to be held if you're running things in the cloud, you have to specifically choose your um, data centers you're going to be hosting things out of. So from that point of view, it's going to be a a key consideration when um, uh, companies that span uh, these borders uh, have to review where they're going to be storing their data.
0: Yeah, because GPDR, data sovereignty is a big thing, right? Uh,
1: yeah, I, we had uh, a lot of customers uh, having to review where they were going to be storing their data, how they were going to be storing the data. Uh, interestingly, we also had customers that were in the whole process of um, the privacy, um, having to look at uh, feature usage in Orion because uh, of the ability to collect personal data on people. So there's it's multi layers. It's not just a, a big package that uh, is
0: going to be a, a consideration to, to take into yeah yeah so has any of the clients you've dealt with come up against it yet um we haven't really had
1: any customers that have outright said that they need to um, change things um, we have had a few discussions around um how the organization structure may change so i would say that's a, a bigger aspect that's going to be an, a more immediate scenario because uh there are companies actively Um, looking at the risks and determining whether they're going to relocate their head offices or their um, uh, kind of registered office at the least. Uh, And therefore, that then may impact where they have to run their DCs out of, where they have to um, uh, store and present data and how they manage that data when it flows across those borders. Um, So from uh, an enterprise that is um, working within the European sphere, outside of that obviously is, is a known target but at the moment there are still a lot of uncertainties which is why uh, so many people are kind of getting very um angsty about everything that's going on this week because it's i mean we've always uh had a whole problem with the the mess of of how brexit has been run and to come down to the wire with what is there nine days left I guess,
0: yeah, Yes, as of today nine,
1: end of the
2: month yes. yeah
1: exactly uh, and still not knowing, are, are we going to be leaving? Is there going to be a hard Brexit? Is there going to be a final deal? Um, I understand today that we're going to be asking for a, an extension till June. What they believe
0: they think they can get done in that time, I have no idea, but hey. Yeah, it's a yeah. big one. So what about, what about yourself then over there at the other side of the water then, Holger? What's your stance on it?
2: Well, I think some of my clients will also uh, – come to me and, and ask for maybe help to, to shift some data out of their UK data centers onto European data centers. I don't know if they are already thinking about it or if they just didn't didn't think about it uh, at, at all. What to do with uh, any SolarWinds data or any, any other monitoring data that they have. So I guess um, they will have uh, more challenges to come up. Um, but at first, like um, Mark said, um, I guess the organizational stuff needs to be done first, and then they will come to the IT stuff later. That's my 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 view on the whole Brexit topic.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. There's going to be an awful lot of people who are just thinking, nah, it's not going to happen. Something's going to happen at the end and Article 50 get get rescinded or um, you know, we'll get an extension for 18 months. We'll have plenty of time. But if we do end up leaving in nine days, there's going to be a huge amount of pandemonium all over the place going, right, what do we do? How do we keep it legal? You know, There's going to be an awful lot of uh, legal consultancies making a lot of money out of Brexit.
1: Uh, I yeah, think so. Yes. From what I understand, the, this is a key um, aspect in uh, the discussions around what's going to happen. There's some um, fundamentals that really cannot change. Uh, things like trade tariffs and um, border controls and those kind of things. Yeah, they they're very practical things. But the reality of running a, a business in this modern age, they cannot risk an impact like this. So I, I cannot see in all reality that they, any kind of legislation will change and the fact that um, companies will not be able to store uh, their data within Europe if they're trading within the European Union.
0: Yeah, it's the grey area, isn't it? Of the, the fact that this is just the, the initial negotiation of, of the, um, the, the initial deal and there's going to be a transition period. But what's the red tape? Where's the grey areas in the transition period? How exposed are businesses when their data is in the wrong place?
1: Well, I think I'd say the the biggest issue is the fact that there is no certainty. So you can go with the assumption that things are not going to change and the fact that a UK company or a UK registered company that has a data centre in Frankfurt can continue working in exactly the same way post-Brexit. That's the likelihood, but the reality is there is no certainty. There is no 100% guarantee, yep, all's going to be well, there's not going to be any issues. So until that comes along, companies are having to make um, alternative plans. They're having to investigate the impact that if that doesn't come through, what's going to um, be the outcome for their business. And uh, many companies are going to err on the side of caution.
2: But uh, how, how can you look at your stuff and find a way to, to get out if you don't even know what what will be the deal, what will be the future? So currently we're all looking into a in, in, into a glass sphere and try to predict the future, what's going to happen? So, the, what I think is the biggest problem is that there are no regulations already clear. What will happen so that a, a business or a company can can adjust to the future regulations that will happen? That's I think what's currently the the the, the most. Uh, well, st- thing that 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 needs to be fixed
1: uh i so say the 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 current information coming out of the, the government or at least on our side is that it's going to be business as usual as in the rules on where you store data that how you transfer data around uh, the european union in and out of the uk is not going to change but i so say the problem is That has not been guaranteed because there is still no full agreement across the board. So until that happens, we are still in that limbo period of, okay, is this going to happen? Is there a risk to this? If there is a risk to this, how is my business going to be affected? Do I need to start planning for the worst? And risk-averse companies are having to do that. They are having to investigate that as a,
0: a potential option. Yeah, I suppose this is where people who have actually gone with the cloud-based Orion database are basically ahead. If they're hedging their bets, they could just move it to a different region within their cloud provider of choice. Uh, so if they, when they know what the issue is, they can just shift things across i mean obviously it's not quite that simple right but it's a lot easier to do it if you're in the cloud already than if you physically got a bunch of stuff in a data center which leads us on to our next subject in a bit but yeah sorry
1: just just on that then jess um so quite a few well a lot of our customers are um, companies that have global presence and so from that point of view when we're designing an Orion platform in particular, it's a case of, well, how do we design that? Well, the database is a singular entity that's going to reside somewhere. So it's either going to be in the UK or outside of the UK in a European location. Um, but we're not going to be putting multiple installations in place around the uh, to cater for these kind of rules. That's just are going to be a massive and this is obviously not just focused on a monitoring solution that we talk about in our podcast uh but lots of other um uh, business applications so our design is we want singular we want simplicity so singular Orion instance monitors the whole of emea and probably beyond we don't want to have legislation that comes along that means that has to change that's that would be insane that would be a huge waste of money for an awful lot of companies
0: yeah massive cost too um you know, because you'd have to effectively duplicate your Orion instance in each one of the what well, in the UK and then the EMEA, and then use something like Enterprise Operations Console to mash it all together. But that's needless complication and expense, really. But it's, we st- we're waiting. Basically, we just don't yeah. know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. yeah, and some some companies already started. Uh, as I recall, a, a conversation on our. Slack channel that one guy is currently having to do that for one company. Carve out the 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 UK nodes into a totally separate instance and uh, leave the rest of the EU notes in another instance. That's what you're talking. About. They they needed to spend money for a whole new Orion instance. Yeah, and and this is where government
1: um, influencing business to that degree um, is just not good for. Um, society businesses should be able to go on there and, and get on with their work uh, employ people which is actually another part of uh, the Brexit issue It's um, clearly one of the the big aspects behind the uh, Brexit from the voting point of view is the control of our border and so as an employer we have a big problem uh, recruiting good staff and so we are looking not just in the in Europe uh, not just in the UK but also in Europe and beyond um, mm-hmm those rules are gonna have a very big impact in the IT arena uh, significantly. I know from what happened in the US with regards to their uh, immigration policy for IT um, talent, that's had a a big impact. You'll see lots and lots of um, uh, blogs and posts online about the impact that the um, uh, Trump um, ruling on restricting the amount of uh, talent that goes into the US has had on the IT industry there.
0: Yeah, that's a whole new topic the trump bit but you know we don't we don't no, want to we don't know when no, alienate no. our u.s colleagues do it let's not let's, no we let, don't <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure he knows what he's doing that's all we need to yeah. say uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: so, and and in, in, in europe it, it's been the total opposite so there have been regulations where qualified it staff does have lower uh regulations to get into the European Union work in there because uh the let's call it European Union government they realized okay we we need people to come in so let's make life easier for them so when when i, when I look at certain um um how would you call it uh requirements for it staff so um they have to earn a certain amount of money which is lower for it professionals than for any other profession if you want to have someone from outside of the european union work in the eu uh
1: yeah I, uh, we're in this position ourselves so um there are different uh, levels of um uh, uh ability to import not import but employ uh, people from outside the eu and basically a a business of a certain size has a certain quota on how many they can employ. Um, There is a risk to us at the moment as to whether that is going to then encompass the EU region because um, that will have a a big impact. We have uh, quite a lot of um, Europeans working for us. Um, uh, The working in Europe is gonna get more problematic. So when we have uh, work for customers in uh, in other uh, countries, the whole
0: visa process is going to have to be applied and, and gone through to, to allow that to happen now. Yeah, it's just making things more expensive for everybody involved. And it just doesn't seem to be benefiting anyone really. It's almost as if the um, the, the mummy and daddy have a massive argument and it's us that are paying the price, but there doesn't seem to be any point in it.
1: So I I don't know how much you have heard. So there's a lot of um, arguments going on over the past uh, several weeks about having another referendum. Um, and there seems to be a very distinct black and white camps on this. Um, those that say that we should have because it's a case of, well, we had a referendum, a vote to start with. Do we leave? Then we've had um, people crying out, we need another referendum to determine whether we're going to accept the deal that's on the table. That needs to be signed by the country, apparently. Um, but obviously the risk there is, and the, what they're driving for is the reality, is that another vote, there'll be an option there to uh, rescind Article 50 and not leave Europe. Is yeah, that I... something that's kind of reported in, in Europe as well?
2: We do hear about it, um, but it's, it's something where... I guess the the continental european people are sorry to say a little bit fed up with all the beating around the bush and not I, 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 getting i'd say to that's point. amplified here <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed so uh, i really don't know how how it's gonna gonna work out in the future i personally think, which I cannot prove, it's just my, my personal opinion, is that a second referendum would be as as close as the first one was. I don't know if it will shift to stay or if it will shift to leave. I don't know.
1: Well, it's, I, I can't really comment because I was shocked of the result of the first referendum. I had no doubt in my mind that it was going to be a stay in Europe vote. Everybody that I spoke to, bar the odd person, um was voting remain um I, I i don't know
0: the um indications in the news would be that it would be the other way quite strongly yeah we'd have to wait and see i mean i, I must admit i got to hold my hands up when the first referendum vote happened i was working away from home on a contract and i hadn't registered for postal voting right so that meant Your fault, I yes yeah it's my fault yeah i couldn't vote so i was actually in watching this in the cinema watching independence day two um Aaron, where, ironic. yeah ironic on the <laughs> night of the vote and Very I, 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 I was sat there going right there's no way we're going to vote to leave i mean what would be the point it's just a bunch of uh well no i'm not gonna get political i'm just gonna say i just didn't think it would ever happen and i was as, as shocked as as you were mark when we saw the result. I was like what how is that possible why would we throw it all away? What are we going to well, gain it, from it? It does seem
1: to be very much a generational thing. Um, the demographics clearly indicate that the younger generation was remain and the older generation was leave. The world's getting smaller. Why we want to be separating ourselves, um, it, it doesn't make any sense. But hey, that's where we are. Yeah, hey, exactly.
2: that's, that's a tendency all across Europe. If you look into uh, Poland, if you look into Hungary uh even in germany there are certain streams uh that 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 tend to austerity sort of say oh, well let's make our stuff let's them make their
0: stuff and and so on yeah yeah, nationalisation. Anyway, I think we've bashed that one to death as far as we can without actually becoming the MVP political podcast. It would all be, <laughs> would all be bashed to death by our politicians, so all we can do
1: is aid it. Yeah,
0: exactly. Let's just put the final boot in. So our second topic, which we kind of bashed, uh, bashed, we took, mentioned earlier on, was uh, the what is the modern data centre? this is quite apt, really, because we were talking about with the potential for separation really um would the modern data center as it is right now would that assist in the people who didn't actually sit on the fence and prepare or would it not so what is the modern data center
2: i guess there's uh, only one answer to that it's 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 hybrid because there are certain stuffs that uh, or certain applications or programs that you cannot move to cloud or cannot move to somewhere else that you will need to keep on-premise. And there are certain data center applications that, hey, let's shift them out to the cloud. And you always have to get things right on where your application will run and if it's a good fit for a cloud, if it's not a good fit. And I guess it's most of the time you will keep something on-premise and you, you will have a lot of things in the cloud. So that's my personal belief, what the modern data center should be. It's 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 hybrid.
1: This uh, For me, this very much depends who you are. If you're um, a user, d- does a user care where they're accessing? All they care about is the performance of it. Can they access their application and does whatever they're doing work well. Um, So from that point of view, it's a very uh, ethereal concept these days where um, uh, companies are, exactly as you just said, they're um, moving um, to SaaS uh, solutions, they're moving their infrastructure into the cloud, they're keeping some of their infrastructure locally, and there's a whole range of criteria that are going to be investigated and looked at for that. Um, I know several customers that um, have this black and white, we are moving the whole shooting match to the cloud and whatever we need to do to make it work that's what we need to do
0: yeah no you just mentioned something there because i've got a couple of clients naming domains of course who have steering from the um cio and above in some cases um that they need to basically put as much as they possibly can in the cloud Um, and what holger just said was 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 perfect right what is it a good fit now in my experience that is a question that's never asked before somebody tries to push something into the cloud it's normally something which is steered from above and the people who know that it's not going to work very well or it's going to be very difficult and painful they never really get to actually feed that up the chain it's it's being um it's being pushed from above and i do wonder sometimes whether it's just basically being pushed so they have a better uh scorecard down the uh 19th hole with their colleagues at the golf course you know it, it's it's almost if they're trying to do it but they don't seem to do the sensible bit is is it a fit that's the that's a bizarre thing that seems to be happening that's that's always been the
1: case in it um edicts from above they've been to uh, a corporate um presentation and uh, this is the way we should be doing it and um whether it was Citrix back in the day where, right, okay, how did we make this uh, application run under Citrix uh, or we can't, well, make it work and then realization that it just, it's just a horrible experience for every user and the business is affected. It's the same thing now, um, I'm seeing customers that are taking uh, infrastructure back on-prem uh, because things have just not worked out with migration into the cloud, whether that's the uh, performance, accessibility, security, or indeed cost. Uh, customers are finding that um, it is not always cheaper to move into the cloud.
2: Something you need to consider is uh, the the size, because for a very small company, so I'm also dealing with 5 to 10 people, clients, um, back from the old days when we didn't specialize in, in um certain software that we're um, consulting and selling those I guess every client that will be l- less than let's let's put a put a number in here let's less than uh, 100 users I guess they won't have any on-premise solution within five to ten years is my guess um, so they will have everything in the cloud they will have their, Terminal servers in the cloud—they will have their data in the cloud and just access the data from wherever they are. That's my belief.
1: Yeah, uh, 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 it's difficult to know the time frame that that's going to happen. Uh, it is one of those things where things can uh, move very, very rapidly and then uh, get to a point where um, the the bleeding edge. Organizations and leading edge are going to be there, um, but then everyone else is kind of playing catch up uh, but I certainly agree with you the the concept of um, renting space in a data center and racking it out and networking it up and all those kind of things um yeah I'm sure somebody else is going to do the uh, the tagline about the cloud and someone else's server but uh that this is reality why do companies need to Um, uh, pay for resource and and talent in the organization to manage that infrastructure when that all comes part of the service. The resiliency and the networking all becomes part of the service. It does massively simplify things.
2: That's correct. And all the smaller clients, they don't have the personnel to deal with all the stuff. And with those uh, smaller companies, it's also probably the better fit, like I said earlier, to move their stuff to the cloud because they don't have the expertise, they don't have the manpower, and it's much more secure for them to let someone deal with their infrastructure and concentrate on their core business.
1: But then you have this concept of control. Uh, We see week in, week out in the news. Some cloud services had a fault. Last week it was Facebook. Facebook huge huge entity massive amount of infrastructure um they design their own hardware they got their own network um uh topology and um protocols in place and yet a server upgrade brings the whole of the platform down for what was it eight hours um office 365 if you look at the availability stats they are um nowhere near as uh, most companies are going to be So from that point of view, are are there going to be um, pushback reasons? Because companies don't have that level of control. If you're a big organization that can fund internal resource and have that internal knowledge, there is a very strong argument to maintain that, to keep that level of control, to decide the technologies that you operate and you run. Um, I have no idea, um, for example, whether uh, Azure is running Cisco kit, is running Juniper kit, or whatever. Do I need to make sure that I have um, cross um, uh, technology? So obviously one of the things that we see a lot in certain secure environments is it's not just one firewall, it's three or four vendors' firewalls because you cannot rely on one because if that's got a, a, a vulnerability, if that's got a security
0: risk associated to it, we can't have that propagating throughout the whole of the layering. Yeah, you give up a lot of control when you move into the cloud because um you just don't know it's all obfuscated by design but if you need to be absolutely sure that your audit's going to pass for example you're heavily reliant on your vendor of choice being compliant and rules change as we all know um and sometimes those rules don't necessarily easily apply to something which you don't have absolute control of but that in itself raises an
1: interesting question you we are see it right let me ask you a, a question uh, um, in terms of customers and um, organizations that you have awareness of, how many are using anything other than AWS, Azure, Google, um, cloud infrastructure?
0: Not many. Right Most space, of them are the top three. There. Yeah, there's,
1: there's, there's three or four, isn't there? So from that point of view, um, choice is, is going to be reduced. Um you could very easily argue and say, well, why do we need choice when those platforms are so good and so flexible and, and um, so many different options in terms of the technology that's available within them? There is a very strong argument to say, well, why do we need choice? Is that a risk, would you say?
2: I think it's a risk because um, if uh, everyone's on those big three, it makes them a good target to attack. So uh, why why would you attack a small Um, cloud provider that only has a few hundred customers to it um, it, when you can attack one with a few hundred thousand on the platform? Well, the
1: counter-argument to that is the fact that um, those big players can spend the amount of money that they need to to put the resilience in, to put the layers of security in there that are going to protect them from uh, that kind of risk.
0: Yeah, it's it's a little bit like old-school Apple you know, going back about five, six, maybe even 10 years, well, I'm getting old, um, you, know, you would always yeah. have security software, which would be for Windows, but you wouldn't see the same number of security software for um, you know macOS, because largely people didn't bother attacking macOS because they were relatively niche. Um, it kind of supports one side of the argument there, but I think that things have changed now and that there's literally... So much connectivity everywhere that things are just being attacked just for um, you know doctorate projects and stuff like that. Can I get through this person's firewall? Uh, yeah, I can. Okay, fine. You you get some marks. They might not be doing any maliciously, but all it takes is a few of those vulnerabilities to become known, and you know the whole ca- card house could just fall down.
1: As I say it's, it's a, a mute point because um, as far as we we're aware, there is no significant. Um, weakness in those infrastructures, Um, I am sure they are receiving hundreds of thousands of attacks every second that we're talking on this podcast, and they're dealing with them and their infrastructure is still running and the customer services are running over them. Most of the outages that we see are still those human errors, still those technology errors where upgrades are being done, migrations are being done, infrastructure changes are occurring. They are still the key causes of um, uh, system loss um so say those big players can put that layer of resiliency and they can put that infrastructure in place that's going to uh cater for those um attack uh, scenarios as well
2: so i do have a small example that i encountered i think it was in the mid of january where one of um the clients that is also in our data center has their their housing in their data center they were being attacked by a um crypto virus so that was and and they are a medium big player here in 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 germany and they didn't have the means to to counter that attack so they their files were encrypted and they came to me and said oh what are we going to do about that so i think when when pricing is an issue and you have to drill down the price to be competitive um then you you kind of miss some things because it was always good it's nothing's gonna happen and when it happens pooh, then it's um it, you're screwed so <laughs> that was one of the stories that i encountered
0: yeah well it's, it's definitely an interesting one um you know, the, the modern data center is very complicated and, uh, you know, it includes a, a huge amount of automation, which is our last topic of the evening. Um, automation is becoming a big thing in corporate IT and also down to, you know, the small players. Um, I think one of the things would be useful to talk about compared, you know, given what we just, uh, you know, approached in the previous one was is it dangerous? What are the benefits of automation, and and are they enough to outweigh the possible issues? Like for example, the Facebook um, issue that we had over the last week. Uh, you know, I've read some things which allegedly point that it was a an automation fail. Basically, a configuration change was replicated, which caused the downtime. I mean, that's a that's a pretty bad um, mark on the automation piece. And what do you guys think?
1: Well, from, I'll jump in. <laughs> for me, um, uh, automation is um, probably the thing that we talk about most, not just from a fact that these are the interesting pieces of work to be doing, but uh, organizations are looking for automation. They're looking at centralized management platforms. Uh, if you look at the uh, DevOps arena, which has been very much driving uh, this over the last uh, uh, period of time, um, the use of uh, those kind of platforms, so Ansible and Chef and Puppet, et cetera. Um, in our SolarWinds universe that we have, uh, we have a number of automation capabilities within there, whether it's out of the box with things like NTM, um, whether it's uh, things like patch management, um, bulk distribution, bulk configuration, bulk changes. Uh, that's been there for a long time. The ability to then automate that and integrate that to third-party platforms, um, you start adding complexity inherently in that um but the benefits are significant uh the manpower um reduction uh the speed of, uh, of deployment and and everything that goes along with that um is a, is the real big drivers
2: i agree with that because the automation benefits outweigh the the consequences when something goes wrong i believe that human error when you do things manually not automated are higher than something with the automation gone wrong if something goes wrong with automation it's going wrong very very badly but uh, it's i think it's more how would you say uh, error prone than doing it manually
1: uh yeah well you have um, a number of aspects to automation. It's so in um, the kind of new networking world, um, automation is not just about that centralized management where you um, make a config change and it just gets distributed to the um, uh, to the fabric. Um, automation is also coming into play with uh, AI. Uh, so where um, it's a self-learning environment where your uh, the network is not um, kind of built and reconfiguring itself to deal with a kind of what you would consider traditional network um, change definition. It's reacting to service delivery. It's reacting to the fact that um, the application that's consuming that network infrastructure um, can work better if we start um, balancing it across different links or, you know what I mean? So from that point of view, um, the um, intervention and the manual review process of that and the passing of that responsibility to self-manage is is all going down the AI route as well.
0: Yeah. I mean what plain devils advocate here. I mean obviously in the old school days where automation wasn't a thing, you know, there was a bit of scripting, sure. You know, people used to spin up new machines based on a script that they know would work for that particular application, but it's gone way beyond just building a server now. Um, when you have the, the the way of trying to automatically deploy an application or create a new network segment and so on and so forth, you know, it's great that it can be automated. And in some cases, basically, the, the, the actual whole platform takes it over itself. But is there always a chance with this that it, it, it's like dead man's shoe syndrome? You're going to have some guy who you set it all up, got it all working properly, uh, we we all know the ethos of uh document everything record it properly but if that isn't done we're in danger of a hit by a bus syndrome potentially where only one guy or a small group of guys and quite often consultants know how these things were set up and it, it could be a risk what do you guys think
2: it should be made with the standards then so standardization is one of the things that goes with automation so if you count on a standardized tool, if you rely on those tools, then it shouldn't be too hard for the new guys to to adopt to the level because it's, it's, it's an industrial standard and they should go from there. And when they learn that industrial standard, they should be able to work with it.
1: And a lot of that comes down to tooling. Um, if you've ever uh, worked with these uh, platforms you will see that some aspects of it is immensely complex other areas are lovely and intuitive and you follow a gooey route and it's like a a hand-holding exercise Um, clearly with the complexity that's coming along with the modern um, IT infrastructure um, and the service delivery focus which is absolutely correct um, when there are problems it took facebook as I say what eight hours to deal with this issue well uh, obviously we don't know the ins and outs of that but relating it to um incidents that uh, we are all more aware of um, then config changes that take place can take time to track down how are you getting visibility of that uh, have you got the right tooling to um, identify the change that's had the impact that it's having have you got the right tooling to test that in the first place? Um, I don't know how many of your customers that you work with have uh, complete dev environments that mirror replicate their production environment to a point where they can test new code and they can test upgrade processes. It's not as common as uh, everyone thinks. And so from that point of view, the ability to to roll back, um, there may well be a plan, but the reality is that that can take an awful lot of time to uh, put in place.
0: Yeah, exactly. It all comes down to good monitoring, really, ironically. Always. Um, <laughs> so you, you have the automation, but you have something that watches it to make sure that Skynet doesn't take over the world, right?
2: Yeah, and if it's going down, you need to be quickly able to see where it went wrong and how to resolve the issue then.
1: Yeah, so I had this conversation in a meeting two weeks ago, Um where um, a customer had just bought NAM. So, with NAM, uh, this is the network automation man- uh, management licensing from SodaWinds, uh, you essentially are given um, the high availability license for uh, part of that package. And I was trying to convince them that it was worth the investment on the server infrastructure to utilize um, high availability. And this conversation went on a long, long time. And I stood firm and I'm very much a believer. Um, In a a scenario where you lose a data center, what what do you do? What you need to do is get the infrastructure running up at the second data center. Well, that should be all all automatic, but how do you know that that's working? How do you know it's performing well? Um, Do you have to sit there and wait for your users to phone up and say they can't access that service? No, that's the job of the monitoring system. So if you're not encompassing your monitoring system in that um, disaster recovery scenario, then... That level of visibility is just immediately removed, and that again comes into this um, uh, issue you raised at the beginning, Jez. Is uh, whatever the issue that occurred here, how big and how widespread was that within the topology of their environment, and did they have the ability to identify that fault very quickly?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a lot of the customers that I've worked with go down the route of having their primary Orion servers in their dr data center so they can always see what's going on in the live environment even if there's an issue um and they also have a like a, t- a way of felt f- failing over to the live site but it's, it's a good way of looking at it if you have that ability and another method would be to have the uh, dr instance that you mentioned mark uh in the dr site which is replicating like for like what's going on so you've always got visibility of what happens so even if you don't have ha if you have uh, a secondary instance of Orion, which is just for dev purposes, put it in your DR site so you can see what's going on in your life, so you've got visibility of what goes on. You know, HA is a magnificent add-on to the Orion platform, um, and if people have got access to it, they should use it, really. Yeah,
2: I also say that because when, when you can't see anything, you don't know what's happening. That's, it's, it's plain and simple. And you need to know what's going on in your data center in order to resolve anything, in order to keep the business up and running. That's uh, the the HA shouldn't be hard to sell. No,
1: and uh, this this is all about knowledge is king. Um, If you have the knowledge, if you have the visibility, to make informed decision, whether it's in this case a, a monitoring infrastructure that tells where the root cause is so that the um, resolution can be expedited as quickly as possible uh, from our world that is uh, a fundamental service that the business should be consuming and making sure that they have um, that platform in place to
0: cover all eventualities yeah definitely and even if the the ha box for the orion platform is you know spec for what it's going to be monitoring that's better than nothing you know, it's obviously not ideal, but at least they'll have that visibility, right?
2: Visibility is key, <laughs> as always.
1: So in terms of uh, swinging this back to the topic that you started off about automation and the dangers of it, um, what are your thoughts on uh, where this is likely to go? Is is there a, um, a, going to be a bigger
0: sphere of automation? How is this going to affect the world of monitoring? Well, eventually SNMP and WMI is going to die. Um, it's been around for a long time, and I wouldn't be surprised if they somebody comes up with something, maybe SolarWinds will do it, um, which isn't an agent, right? So it's not something that is actually installed, but it, it, it's a container, perhaps. So almost like decentralized polars rather than actually using something like uh, WMI uh, and something that it hooks into. Um, I mean, I'm not a coder, uh, well, at least not a natural coder. It always gives me a headache when I have to do any coding. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes down the decentralized route rather than u- and also using something that isn't proprietary to the technology, so not SNMP, not WMI, something like a, an advanced API, perhaps, which can be put anywhere that does the job. But that's my take on it.
1: Yeah, you, you, it, it's kind of um, very much there in terms of the fundamentals. We've got um, APIs galore, and there are um, centralized versions of those, but um, we're always going to be in a situation. SNMP, um, love it, hate it. Um, We spend an awful lot of our time uh, within it. And so from there, then we've got um, uh, a protocol which has um, been taken the foundations of, and you look at a, a, a private midge, uh, MIB of a, an enterprise uh, vendor, and you'll see the different takes that people do on that. And certainly from that, applying that to APIs, there is always going to be an inconsistent model. There's always going to be a, a um, uh, somebody that's going to have a, a slightly different iteration and structure, but the concept of an API gives us everything that we need for the future of monitoring. Um, it's always going to be that standardization is going to be um, uh, the problematic aspect because everyone needs to join that party and everyone needs to do things in exactly the same way
2: and some of them think they're doing it better than others and they don't agree with the standard Uh, how many dvd standards were there dvd plus r minus r plus minus rw or whatever they couldn't agree so someone had to do uh, a cd burner that was or a dvd burner that was taking all of them and it's all about the standardization and people have to follow the standardization
0: yeah and everyone's got to agree you know this it, it comes down to the, the the talk we had earlier on with the brexit is that you know nationalization so in other words vendor specific apis is all well and good but if we want to have a and dare i say it open source or at least a universally supported api everybody's got to be on board with that particular train otherwise it's never going to get there or won't support certain things which will defeat the whole object um whether we'll get there or not we'll just have to wait and see uh
1: yeah absolutely and i'd say the the framework's already there there's um those apis um in our monitoring space um the, the fact that we're using SNMP less for the new technology and using APIs more um, is a great thing. Um, it's a more problematic thing because of that standardization. But the concept is there because uh, we have a, a web service API that uh, we send RESTful um, interactions with, um, get JSON there and back we can all work with that and, and there is that level of consistency it's just slight nuances on how that's done
0: all righty then so on to the final topic of the podcast for this week and that would be 2159 ways to improve your alerting strategy and you wouldn't believe number 38 so i think we'll let uh I'll let you deal with the start with that one mark considering it's quite topical for you uh yes it is um we have a, a an event coming up on friday where
1: we've got a group of people coming in customers and whatever um to um, see our mini masterclass on how to manage alerting um, so i've literally been doing slide decks and preparing labs for the last couple of days for that event um and there are some key concepts in this um the very big one is um, when you install, now if I'm going to talk about Orion here, when you install Orion, please understand that the alerts that come with the platform that SolarWinds have spent a lot of time and effort putting in place for you, they are not the golden bullet. You have to look at every single alert and you have to tune it for your environment, because otherwise you're going to get bombarded with alerts your users that are receiving alert notifications in whatever protocol output they are um, are quickly going to get turned off. They're going to lose confidence. And then you're on a, an uphill battle to regain that.
2: It's like Kevin always says, the default alerts turn them off. <laughs> That's what he uh, said in the, I think, I think it was even the, the last podcast where he said that, that um, either take them as an example, how to build your own alerts or just turn them off and build your own from scratch. So I I always say that to my clients, I'll turn those alerts off. You can look at them. You can modify them. Just please don't turn them back on unless you review them.
1: And that uh, last thing is the key thing there. Um, so the advice that we give customers, um, sit down, review the alerts that you think you need identify the ones you know you need right let's concentrate on those let's work with them and get them sorted um but the ones that they're not sure about turn them on and just log them to a file or something log them somewhere where you can review them and you can identify well how many have we generated in the last week um understand and this is going to be a, the second uh, session is um do your alert analysis How are you generating alerts? How many for each of those objects, for each of the alert definitions? Um, Because without going through that process, you don't know clearly how you need to tune them. Uh, False positives are the bane of everybody's life. When you receive an alert and you have to spend the time reading that subject before you realize it's noise, it's not a true alert condition, I'm going to move on. the better for everybody. Um, and the converse of that is obviously false negatives where uh, your boss comes over to your desk and says, um, explain to me why this expensive monitoring system that we've invested in did not tell us that we had
0: an outage. Yeah, it comes down to benchmarking, doesn't it? So that that would uh, start off with what is you're monitoring, so the thresholds, making sure that you've got enough data in there so that the thresholds that you're using are relevant, whether that be static thresholds or using the dynamic thresholds available in Orion. And then moving that on to the alerts, having the benchmark of the alerts going to, like you say, a file or a, a, you know, your own mailbox, if you're the one who created it, so you're the one who gets inflicted by the spam. And eventually over time, you get to a point where you're happy with it. You know that you're not getting you know too many false positives you know you're never going to get rid of them all you know with the best one in the world you're always going to get one that sneaks through every six months um you know and you're happy with it
2: it's all about the fine tuning uh in in, in the running system so like like you guys said look what they're doing review them regularly and um talk to your guys that receive the alerts do you receive too many do did you not receive something when something was happening? Fine-tune the alerts. It's a, it's a constant process. You're I believe you're never done with alerting. No, never,
1: never, never done. Never will be done. Um, you're in a situation again. Going back to what we've discussed already today, the complexity of the infrastructure, the complexity of the data that's. Um, being collected on the health and status of that is just increasing uh, all the time so you're never going to be able to cover every eventuality you're never going to be able to put the ruling that's going to create that topology of dependencies that means that um, one incident causes 50 alerts to come out Um, there are always going to be scenarios where that occurs the key with that is having the ability and the knowledge to be able to learn and deal with that so when we um, that do training for NOC users, for example. Um, tier 1 service desk engineers are typically the front line. They're the, they're the filter mechanism. They're the ones that are going to say, yeah, OK, I need to send this to um, uh, Ted in the network team to get this resolved. Um, they're the ones that should be the most vocal about the noise that's coming out of a monitoring platform. They're the ones that should be feeding back and saying, look, today I received 10 alerts that were all false positives. Um, can you change the rules to prevent this
0: happening again? That does not happen enough. Yeah, exactly. Because every single alert will end up being an incident ticket at some point. Somebody has to then analyse that ticket, spend time working out whether it's actually a real alert and whether it needs to be dealt with by them or dished out to the relevant supporting team. That all uses resource. So it's always important to get the uh, knock management team or your service desk manager, whichever, whoever is the first line, to sign off any new alert so that they're happy that they can support it and that the number of alerts that they've seen in testing is manageable when they take it on you know along with everything else that they've got because that's something that's important because yeah you can get the alert working and it does the job but make sure that the people who are in the trenches are happy with what they've got and get their approval before you make it live
1: and what about those alerts that um go out at three o'clock in the morning um Especially on uh, for organisations that um, that on-call engineer is is getting out of bed, looking at their alerting, logging onto the systems, recording the ticket, actually identifying, saying this isn't important. I can deal with this tomorrow morning. Oh, but here's the um, 87 pounds um, uh, it's cost for me to to spend that hour doing this. That they are genuine and real-world um, issues that are affecting.
2: That's right. And uh, if you wake someone up at three o'clock in the morning for nothing, it's not only uh, the money that's cost, it's uh, lifetime wasted. And that's something where uh, what we do not want to do, waste someone else's lifetime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Especially when, you've got- when
2: there's good sleep to be
0: had. <laughs> yeah so when you've got alerts which do lead to uh priority one call outs that's where you have to be absolutely sure that the benchmarking's right because you don't want to wake anybody up i mean i'm sure i don't know whether you guys have but i used to be on the receiving end of those things and yeah it's frustrating when you get something and they wake you up and you look at it and you realize that a it's a false positive which is the worst kind or b it's not really something that needs a call out because it's on a a dev or test server, but for some reason the alert doesn't specify that. Making sure the information's right is also key. Yeah, so kind of
1: what I said at the beginning there: the default alerts that provide out of the box are fantastic because you can look through that list and you can look at that and go, "Oh yeah, actually that would be a useful alert to to be aware of." But those are not complete, so we've already discussed very briefly the fact that the triggers need tuning pretty much every single alert, that's the case. Uh, But what we're kind of um, discussing there about that on-call engineer, when that on-call engineer receives that notification through, have every piece of information that you feel is beneficial for that recipient to look at and say, okay, I can make an informed decision based on this receipt. I don't need to log onto a system. I don't need to go and collect information from anywhere else. All of that data is in this message do I get out of bed? Do I just roll over and go back to sleep again? So and in the
2: best case scenario, it's also nicely formatted. If something's going very wrong, it's big red alert. Yeah. And if something's, oh, well, it's, you you can take some time in to, to resolve it, but it needs to be done in the next few hours, make it a yellow alert or whatever. Yeah. So the but, formatting is also something.
1: Yeah, and, and the, the thing with that is very few people now are in a situation where they're not okay to receive HTML emails or HTML formatted alert notifications um, because creating a um, a layout where you've got colorization that sh- clearly shows the severity and the impact that you've got structure around um, the message so you can easily consume that information and make sense of it without um, having to uh, to really concentrate on it. From that point of view, use HTML, use a, a nice, elegant stru- and consistent structure. That's a, a big thing as well. Um, if you're getting alerts from 10 different types of notification coming through and they're all laid out completely different, that just it just makes it hard work every single time you get that in.
2: Yeah, so It boils down again to standardization
0: and automation. Yep, agreed. I mean, it's it's something that would be quite good if they, uh, if SolarWinds themselves built into the default alerts, just some basic HTML, you know, which colors like puts a blue board, uh, red board if it's critical, yellow border if it's warning, because we, we've all done it ourselves. But this day and age, HTML is supported so widely, it would be great if those default alerts also had them too, for those who don't have the coding experience to add them in. So it's easier for the people who don't have either the money or the time or the expertise to do what we do um but still get the benefit of something which pops out at the on-call engineer but i do feel slightly dirty because we've been talking
1: about email and alerts i one of my soapboxes email it's not the right protocol for alerting
0: okay so that would be um pager duty or something like that then um
1: yeah well you it's a case of um uh well let's break it down so you you receive an email you're a a group of five engineers um you're walking around the building your phone goes off you look at it and it's an alert coming out from solar
0: winds what happens yeah you just have to work out whether it's whether it's actually worth dealing with or not amongst all the other hundreds that you've had
1: well the, the the first consideration there is who's dealing with this uh should i be dealing with this there is no there's no communication platform within there it's a singular communication that's one way it's popped up in your single mailbox and so how who's taking ownership who's dealing with that i've now got to go to another communication platform to start communicating with my team and say okay uh has anyone raised a ticket for this um has anyone grabbed it who's on call at the moment that is all completely separated from uh, email as a protocol.
0: Yeah, so, absolutely.
2: So you need so put put it into slack or whatever telegram channel or anything like that. I I did it once into a telegram channel. That was kind of awesome but uh, that was just in my my development system that I had uh sitting around to play with um that that was something that I started. But uh, since you mentioned it, it's something that we should take a closer look into.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, the thing that I say to our clients is the sooner you can get your alerts into your platform which you manage alerts in, and that's typically going to be your help desk platform or your ITSM platform, the better. Because that is the solution that has the capability of saying, OK, these three network engineers are the ones that are on call during this time window, Um, that there is a queuing system, that there is um, a button press that says that I've got this ticket now and I'm dealing with this ticket, that there's internal communication to um, share the knowledge, that it's got immediate access to the knowledge base. It's it's all of those kind of things. Orion is a monitoring tool. It's not an alert management platform we've got very basic functionality. We can acknowledge an alert. We can put notes on the alert. These are all fantastic features that SolarWinds have baked into their product because they, to be honest, they know that a lot of customers are not using um, their alerting output in an efficient way. So they're, they're kind of giving them a, enough to, to, to uh, make some efficiencies. But as I say, the sooner you can get that alerting into a, a, a ticketing platform, the better everyone's going to be.
0: OK, good tips there. So email is obviously your, your basic, you know, CC option if it's a P1 and then you have your alerts being fed into your service now or which Ryan has uh, integration for, by the way, or any other ITSM you've got. So other than those, what other methods have you guys used with your customers?
1: Can I can I give the, the one that I had most pleasure on? yeah we we had a customer about 6 years ago uh they were in the oil sector in the middle east and they were um uh, their orion platform was monitoring their traditional infrastructure but it was also monitoring some in, um, industrial infrastructure and so we coded up that it turned a light on on a dashboard uh, uh, you know those kind of old fashioned not old fashioned but the electrical panels um, and if you were in a kind of power station kind of thing, you saw this big metal panel with all these lights on it. Uh, yeah, we configured it to turn various lights on on that.
0: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the, the thing that I had is, like like I said, I, I offered one of my clients the, the Telegram stuff. And one of my other clients, they're looking into maybe an integration with Slack. So. Um, there's something that I need still need to learn how to push information into Slack. I've seen some some posts on the on the forum, I, and that's something where my one of my clients is is aiming for.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe we uh, can have a, a session on this because it's really easy. Actually, there's a uh, Leon and I think Patrick together wrote up a, a KB on how to integrate to Slack, uh, which is excellent. There's the Um, So we use Slack. Um, Currently, we're moving over to Teams and we've already migrated the alerting into that. Um, But literally, you um, have two primary options. In uh, the Orion Actions, um, you've got the get or post to URL. That's the easiest one. Um, So in your Slack, you just create a webhook add-on. That gives you the URL to post to and then you build a little bit of JSON uh, to push it in there. And it works awesome. The other option is to then uh, take it to a, a kind of script. So I think the example that they created was a PowerShell script. Um, you've got a little bit more control. Obviously, in a script, you can do your um, uh, if-then-else logic uh, that will then um, allow you to be a bit more complex with it. But the great thing about this, as I say, we use this internally, and I will always discuss this with clients, is um, an alert comes in, and immediately you're chatting you're talking about it. It's the fact that somebody's going in there and say, oh, yeah, I was working on this um, server yesterday. Uh, Let me go and have a look at it.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I mean, being able to cooperate with your colleagues and having people that you wouldn't necessarily, you know, maybe they're in a different office, still being able to talk to you about the issue. It's invaluable, right?
2: It is very invaluable with all the this, uh, the modern workplace, where not everyone is sitting in, in the same office anymore. Um, so Germany is discussing about, about a right on home office, so that uh, even if your employer doesn't give you the a- any home office possibilities, you can you can file a complaint and get home office. That's something our government is currently looking into. Wow um, and if you have that collaboration tool then that you put your alerts in everyone's has the the opportunity to say something about it that's pretty cool
1: yeah yeah, yeah. as i say the the, the thing here is um, when we talk about alerting it's identifying the multitude of ways of um, getting a notification out because that's what we're talking about here we're creating um, uh, output. That informs somebody that something is um, needing investigation. And so, so if you put that into your texting platform, that platform is purpose designed to allow you to then process that issue to a resolution and it records all the history and the timers and everything else. That's the panacea that people should be heading for. Um, outside of that, email is gonna it's the incumbent. Most customers use it in that way, um, uh, despite best efforts all around. That's still going to be the case. But those options that exist um, are significant. And we haven't even touched on automation on this either. Who wants to have a jab at that one?
0: Well, I mean, some of the customers I've worked with use, um, they heavily use CMDBs. So they import a lot of information to their custom properties uh, in Orion from their CMDB. And those custom properties would include things such as the distribution lists that alerts have to go to, things like that. And then when uh, an event is created, which has all the information in, that is then picked up by uh, an ITSM platform, uh, which, you know, and then from there, that's then dealt, the tickets are then picked up, are created after somebody's seen this middle piece of middleware. I can't go into details, obviously, because, you know, I'd be giving away who I'm talking about, but... You know, there's an awful lot you can do with custom properties, which we're not talking about today, which should give you that ability to automate where things go.
2: Yeah, that's something that I also like to use to put in just the email address of the team that's responsible somewhere, because that's, it might be a totally different topic on fine-tuning even alerts onto another level that you don't have to create 20 or 25 alerts because you have 20 or 25 different teams that an email needs to go to. Just use a custom property and have one alert that picks out all the stuff that you need from the custom properties so you don't put too much stress on your on your database if you have alerts that run like every few seconds or every few minutes. That's also something that I – uh, suggest for performance optimization on the on the database.
1: So this is something that I discuss when I do training. Um, I went to a customer several years ago that um, it was a training uh, week, uh, and they said to me when we were doing the alerting, "Look, we really struggle with alert uh, with the platform. It's really poor performance." So we logged on, had a look at that. They had around 400 nodes they were managing, and I failed to stifle a laugh when I found that they created an individual alert for every single individual device, where the alert definition was uh, node name is equal to ABC, node status is equal to down. Crikey. Every single alert was going to the same email address. Every single alert was exactly the same definition, except
0: for the fact it said node name equals. Yep. Just the properties to help you there, or even the variables in it, right which are just there out of the box. This this is it. So uh, we went through the whole
1: process of consolidating that down, and I, it's, it's a big thing. Um, you can see lots of installations with far too many alerts because, uh, as you just said, the use of variables for where you send the email to. Um, the use of custom properties to define thresholds that maybe you can't put at the object level. Um, The use of custom properties for filtering because that determines where it's gonna get um, included or not. Um, The use of variables in your alerting output. So again, you're giving that level of information, what type of device it is, where is it, who owns it. Um, All of this information, uh, the foundation is custom properties really, really well.
2: And that's something that I try to to explain to, to my customers custom property doesn't cost much but it brings a lot of value to it it's just one uh column in in your notes table it's not a lot of data but it can help you in so many ways that's uh that's something that's a, a totally different and a podcast on its own the custom
0: properties yeah definitely i mean the custom properties is probably my favorite subject in Orion and also it's its superpower it gives you the ability to customize it for any particular customer in any environment and uh, maybe we'll try and get both the EMEA and the U.S. uh, podcast together to talk about that one because it's uh, it's a good good subject and uh, important for every customer to get a handle of. All right so I think we've uh, covered some good topics today. I hope you've all enjoyed listening this week. So, um, yeah, thanks for listening. My name's Jez. I've enjoyed your company today, and I'll leave it to the other guys to sign off.
2: All right. Uh, I'll say goodbye as well. Um, All the best from Germany, and thanks
0: for listening.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, and I can stop talking about Brexit for
0: another two weeks. Excellent. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Good
2: night. Good night. Bye.